Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful. This is KCBS In-Depth. There is, one knows not what sweet mystery about this sea, whose gently awful stirring seems to speak of some hidden soul beneath. That's a quote from Moby Dick, but it could probably be the backstory for many who once left the land for the vastness of the ocean. Of course, not all who took to the seas returned from them, and in those instances, what's left behind are the broken and battered remnants of another time in another place. There's a long history of shipwrecks in the San Francisco Bay Area, and so all this past week, those relics of the past were brought into focus with Shipwreck Week in San Francisco. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Mary Hughes. First off, let's get a little background on the genesis of Shipwreck Week with Nicole Meldahl, Executive Director of the Western Neighborhoods Project. Thank you so much, Nicole, for speaking mm-hmm. with me. And for those who don't know or aren't familiar, what is the Western Neighborhoods Project? Yeah, we are a very tiny community history nonprofit focused on preserving and sharing the diverse history and culture of San Francisco's West Side. And we've been doing that since 1999. And we do lots of things, uh, programs like Shipwreck Week, uh, history walks, history talks. We also partner with local businesses like Four Point Beer Company to do trivia nights. So uh, and we work with students as well. We like to have a lot of fun with history and, and get as many people into the fun as possible. And how did this uh, endeavor come about, the, the Shipwreck Week? How did that happen? So we're a two-person organization. It's myself and Chelsea Sellen, who's our director of programs. And um, about this time last year, we realized that a few of the shipwrecks, the notable shipwrecks off of Land's End, they happened on the same day. And that got us curious, well, uh, is is there something going on environmentally in San Francisco that um, causes shipwrecks to happen in October? Um, And 
long story short, we ended up deciding we needed to have a full week all about shipwrecks because there are so many storied histories revolving around the dangerous maritime trade here. It was so epic. It, it needed a full week. I did a little digging uh, in preparation for our conversation. And and I was, you know, I'm not as familiar with the shipwrecks that have happened here in the, the San Francisco Bay. And it was fascinating to to just read up on some of that. What were the ones particularly at Land's Inn? Do you know? Um, oh, gosh, you know, I'm not a shipwreck expert, I have to say. <laughs> we rely on shipwreck experts working with us. But um, the, 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 the wreck that really struck me the most, because we've been doing a little bit of research for our podcast, and I came across the lesser known one called the Bessie Everdeen. So this is kind of a sneak peek into the podcast now. And it, it involves a cat. That's all I'm going to say. It's very exciting and it, <laughs> it involves a cat. But we also have two of the most prominent wrecks along Land's End are the Frank Buck and the Ohioan. And um, one of the other reasons we wanted to sort of deep dive into this history, my apologies for the pun, um, is we were able to acquire a couple years ago from the big Cliff House auction, a massive ship's wheel that we believe is from the the SS Ohioan. And it's so fun to be able to get people engaged in this history and have this massive tangible artifact uh, to sort of harken back to that era. So that's what really brings history alive for us. Well, yeah. So that's something that I, I think about quite a bit because I, I'm a I'm a huge fan of of the project, the Western Neighborhoods Project. Um, mm -hmm. I, I follow Open SF History on right. uh, on Instagram, and and I just I love seeing what what came before. And you know, is this something that you've always been drawn to? This in, almost investigative uh, collecting of of the past. Yeah, you know, I was that nerdy little kid who like couldn't get pulled out of an antique store. There's just something that's always drawn me to stories from the past. And I think that's that's the um, miscommunication of what history is. Often people think it's this sort of remote academic exercise, but it's just stories about people and places from the past. People who are a lot like us, um, as I as I research these different you know events or shipwrecks, the people I meet uh, throughout time remind me of myself. We're all just San Franciscans living in the same city at different times. So it's wonderful to be able to meet people from the past and bring them into the present. And it's so much, it's so compelling when it's around sort of a dramatic episode in our shared past, like a shipwreck and things like that. But you mentioned the photography archive, which I was remiss for not mentioning earlier. OpenSF History is a citywide photo archive um, from uh, scanning and, and making available online uh, photos from private collections and helping other organizations get their collections online. And photographs are the most amazing way to learn about history, right? It's, it's so evocative. You immediately understand what you're looking at because San Francisco has changed a lot, but also San Francisco hasn't changed a lot. So you can recognize these landscapes really easily and it helps you connect to the past. We, we've always been the human race. I think we're always prone to documenting what's going on around us, whether it's big events, you know, obviously, or even just the more mundane everyday things. Um, it's so much a part of keeping us connected with what came before. 
Oh, it's so true. And these shipwrecks were really, it was a really big deal. Streetcars had advertisements on the front of them that says like, you know, take the, take the streetcar out to Land's End and see the shipwreck. Um, and think, just think about it, right? Before we had the internet, before we had TVs in our homes. Um, this was, this was the thing you had to go see in San Francisco when it happened in the 1930s, especially with, um, with the snapshot camera being so prevalent, our archive has been able to document these shipwrecks in, in, a, in a really incredible way. So it's also, this whole week is also a way, um, sort of what I said before too, of, of engaging people around the resources we have available and also having some fun. What about beyond this week though? It, will shipwreck week be something that happens every year or, you know, is there a way to kind of keep the interest in these, uh, in these ships that have uh, run aground and stayed there to keep the interest going beyond the week? Yes. We're hoping this goes citywide next year. Uh, so this is, this will be the first of many, we hope we we've always been doing this work. We're just, um, we're just making it um uh, I guess more epic and hoping that next year we can get started on the marketing a little bit earlier and we can get more people involved in the fun. You you gave a teaser as to, to what's on the podcast uh, and what people can find out about a particular shipwreck. And mm -hmm. um, but is there any sort of um, detail or anything that you've learned uh, with all this shipwreck investigation and, and conversation that you were surprised to learn? Well, uh, I'm trying to get up to speed on my ship terminology, um, which is still pretty shaky. But I did learn that um, a schooner, which is a type of uh, masted ship that moved goods back and forth along the coast of California in the 1880s, is also the Australian term for a beer glass. Really? <laughs> yes. That's okay. the one that stuck with me. <laughs> nice. See, that's good to know. <laughs> So if you're in Australia, you can order a schooner of beer. Fantastic. <laughs> and it, I mean, I'm assuming it won't be quite as big, but uh, I'm sure it will be equally as amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Nicole, thank you so much for taking taking a little bit of time to, to talk with me. Oh, thank you so much, Mary. This was a real joy. Now we turn to Dr. James Delgado, Senior Vice President of Search, Inc., which is the world's largest cultural resources company and... He's also the former director of NOAA's Maritime Heritage Program and a Bay Area native who knows a lot about shipwrecks, both here and around the world. You have a pretty prolific career when it comes to maritime work and archaeology. Um, so let's let's start with what pulled you towards this type of work to begin with. What pulled me to this work was growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area and being regularly confronted as I grew up in San Jose with the past because it was still there. It was present in the old ranches and farms that were making way to Silicon Valley back when I was young, but also the, the sites of the indigenous people, the Ohlone in particular, that were being exposed by construction, be it the malls or the suburbs. And that lit a fire in me for both not only the past, but also archaeology. But I also have to say that what also made that magic was I was the kind of kid fascinated by all this that would go out and hike through the Santa Teresa foothills, that would knock on the doors of the old ranches 
and talk to people born in the 19th century about the valley as it was. And that sense that the past was literally just a, a moment away was so compelling that when I arrived in San Francisco as a young National Park Service archaeologist and the Niantic emerged from the mud at Clay and Sansom Streets and the thought that the Gold Rush City was entombed literally beneath the streets and sidewalks, well, that just carried me further into the maritime world. You know, going into this conversation, I was reminded of my own childhood. And I grew up in North Carolina in the more mountainous regions. Um, but I was fascinated as a kid by stories of things that happened at the coast, especially there were a lot of books when I was growing up about Ghost of the Carolinas. And it would focus a lot on pirate ships and you know, where you might be able to find pieces of shipwrecks or even, you know, see some sort of like, you know, spectral uh, vision of, of a ship that once existed. And, you know, it always seemed like a very fanciful kind of thing. But it's in your work, I it's it sounds like you have been able to marry the fanciful with with discovering the facts as well. I was, but what compelled me, particularly being in the National Park Service, was then going elsewhere in the country, including the Outer Banks of North Carolina and Cape Cod and into the Great Lakes and into the Gulf of Mexico and into the heartland and seek out history, in particular shipwrecks. And one of my favorite projects still, one of the type of you know field trip that one never tells their mom about, was driving through in the midst of a hurricane. Uh, the Outer Banks and documenting shipwrecks long buried but exposed by the storm waves of the hurricane. Once again, these these ghosts in the graveyard of the Atlantic. You touch on something there that I think is interesting uh, when we are talking about something like this shipwrecks and, and what they can reveal to us. Um, why do you think they hold such interest um, for us as as people? Well, I think it goes back to that old sense that goes into antiquity of be aware of your own mortality as a human. Uh, memento mori have been around, whether you are standing in front of a church with skulls carved on it, as I recently was in Italy, or if you are looking at the mummies of Guanajuato, or even if you're just walking through a local graveyard, uh, that's there. But there's also this sense with shipwrecks that this is one of those moments where, in particular, what you are compelled to consider is that you are not in control, which is a pretty powerful emotion. Uh, shipwrecks also, in this near-intact state, as we've come to see them in the deep, I think rouse a number of emotions. And I've certainly seen that in all of my work with Titanic, but also with wrecks of warships, where there has been incredible sacrifice in the name of service to nation and to one's brothers and sisters in arms. Well, these discoveries, you know, they can reveal not just a lot about ships, but um, a lot about the time period and about the people who were once there. Um, you mentioned, of course, at the start of, of how you were pulled towards this type of work. And as you are someone from the Bay Area, um, what are some of the discoveries, shipwreck-wise, 
here that have have stuck with you? Well, I think the the siren song of the gold rush continues to pull at me. I uh, remain actively interested. I've got a, another article coming out soon, a professional, you know, scholarly one, uh, on other aspects of, of early San Francisco and the gold rush and the maritime nature of it. But it is the buried ships and all of the work done there to the shipwrecks around the Golden Gate, the ones early on, the, the steamer Tennessee wrecked in 1853, or wrecks that I encountered on the beach, like King Philip at the foot of Noriega on Ocean Beach, have it had been exposed by winter storms, but also some of the deeper water wrecks we've worked on more recently, the city of Chester relocating the city of Rio de Janeiro, Finding Ituna, USS Conestoga, diving deep onto the the wreck of the carrier independence off Half Moon Bay. I mean, all of those, plus every unidentified coastal lumber schooner or, or ranch boat up and down the coast to the dog hole ports of the Sonoma and Mendocino coast tied to all of those ranches sending their goods to market. All of that uh, re- remains a, a very special uh, reminder to me of how much history is represented by the shipwrecks and the maritime environment in and around not only San Francisco Bay, but the entire California coast. You know, in this day and age, we, we don't really think about ships and, and what they used to mean uh, to us as a society uh, all those years ago. And to that point, I, I don't think that um, probably most people aren't aware of the maritime action that uh, the California coast used to get. Well, absolutely. And I think part of that is that in the modern era, one, San Francisco is no longer the big port. It's it's Oakland. It's Los Angeles. You can go and find a big port, say, in Seattle or Vancouver or elsewhere. But also in the aftermath of 9-11 with Marsec. I mean, you can't approach, you can't get near a port. They're now security zones. Whereas back in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, even up to World War II and beyond, you could literally walk to the foot of Market Street and there were ferries coming and going. There were coastal steamers. There were larger ships. I mean, it was an active port literally right in front of everyone. And in fact, they didn't call it the waterfront. They called it the city front in San Francisco because San Francisco faced the sea and faced the bay. And water was the means by which people connected. The bridges changed a bit of that. But even then, still, the ferry boats were a powerful reminder of how much we in the Bay Area depended on the water. I find it so interesting because there's the the side of this work that you do that is very much studying this passage of time and, and digging into this this history. But then there's the, the nuts and bolts of, of what you find out um, with each discovery and uh, with with the with the shipwrecks that have happened here on the California coast and in particular the the San Francisco Bay, you know, what were the reasons uh, for why a ship would run aground here or, you know, heading away and, and never make it to shore? Inevitably, the cause of shipwreck is essentially a, a human a human mistake. Uh, whether you run aground in the fog, whether you hit each other, whether you uh, haven't maintained something right. But there's also the other thing that comes into play, and that is the the inevitable power of nature and our 
futile attempts to deal with that. San Francisco's fog has always been a force to contend with and, and the reason for a number of shipwrecks. Jack London would write famously about a ferry boat being rammed and sunk in the fog in the opening of, uh, of White Fang. So you've got that. But you also have the people that just simply miss stays. You know, the wind dies, you try to tack and turn around and you get blown ashore. Lots of vessels ended up on Ocean Beach in that way. But you also have folks who are trying to shave it a little bit too close and in the fog strike the rocks. The city of Rio de Janeiro did that, but famously too, Tennessee did that in March of 1853 when overpowered by the outgoing tide and as Captain Totten thought he was heading straight in, he was arcing in a curve until suddenly up loomed uh, what today is known as Tennessee Cove and the ship was beached and wrecked. But then there's the captain uh, of uh, a very uh, famous, you know, at least in its time, a former packet ship, the Oxford, who sailed right into Tamales Bay and up into the mudflats where they were stuck forever, thinking somehow he'd never been here before that he'd sailed into San Francisco Bay and asked all of the local indigenous Koshai Pomo and others uh, and the coastal Miwok people, um, where's the city? What I like most about the Oxford is that it's still there. We pinpointed its wreck thanks to the old coast survey charting it back in the 1850s and probing in the mud in Tamales Bay found it, its crunchy um, remains from being consumed by marine organisms. But also archaeologist Jim Schneider and others excavating ashore found that the indigenous people recovered things from the wreck and used it in their own homes and, and, and salvaged. But not before San Francisco merchants went and salvaged Oxford's cargo. And are you ready for this? I mean, this seems to me to be the quintessential gold rush cargo. The primary thing being carried by Oxford was both whiskey and ice. So it may not have been on the rocks, but it delivered something on the rocks. Now, um, obviously, I'm not very knowledgeable in uh, in maritime history or work. Um, and so since we're kind of here in that nuts and bolts section, what goes into determining the ship that, that's discovered? Like, um, how do you know what it is and, and where it came from? Well, the hardest game to play in Shipwreck archaeology has pinned the name on the wreck. And more often than not, we don't do that. In some cases, it's very easy. I remember getting called in the midst of a winter storm in the 80s and going out to Point Anya Nueva to the state park. And with my colleagues there, uh, Martin Mayer, the, the archaeologist for the Golden Gate National Recreation, I'm scooping the mud away. And, and I'm saying, this looks to be a late 19th century wooden vessel sailing, but possibly a steam schooner. Said, I wish we could tell the name. And Marty looks up and he goes, Point Arena because it was still carved in the bow. <laughs> that doesn't happen all the time. It really doesn't. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were all sitting in mission control here in Washington, D.C. for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, looking at a carrier, an aircraft carrier from the Battle of Midway, lost in June of 1942, that we knew what it was. But as we came around the stern, there were three patches of white paint that had covered its name in, in Japanese characters. And there it was. You could make it out in relief as the light created shadows, Akagi, the flagship of the Imperial Japanese Navy for both the Pearl Harbor attack and the Battle of Midway, sitting there in close to 18,000 feet of water. Again, as I said on the time, and I see it's out in a video, it's rare when a ship tells you its name. Likewise, when we went to the stern of the Independence off Half Moon Bay, a few thousand feet down, 
There it was at the stern, independence. But when that doesn't happen, it's a forensic process, not dissimilar to detective work or as people have often asked CSI. And in that, we look at a variety of things. At best, in most cases, we can determine a rough age and a context for a ship. It's it's a this type of vessel. It's a that type of vessel. And then where there's cargo surviving, we can say this is what it likely did or carried. But more often than not, it it's a site number or a name. Where it gets more difficult is when you don't have much of a site left. But in all of these cases, there's something to be learned. Um, for me as an archaeologist, what I'm looking for, above and beyond a name, is a context. And in that, a, a tie back to not only the people of the past, but what was happening then. And for us to better understand what the maritime world was doing to help shape the society then, and by extension, the society we live in now. And in that, the oceans have connected us for millennia. They have been the means by which we have gotten to know each other for better or worse as humanity. And they are the most dominant thread in human history, with apologies to all those who love the desert. There's just so many fascinating details and pathways you can take uh, in a conversation like this and with work like this. And um, I, I can honestly say it brings about wonder in me, and I imagine it will in other people. And that brings me to wanting to know how can we make sure that people can be engaged in something like this? You know, the average person who's who's just sitting here uh, hearing this conversation, uh, but maybe they are now interested in learning more about shipwrecks and, and maritime um, history. What can be done to stoke that interest in them? I mean, we have something like what we what we had in San Francisco Shipwreck Week, uh, but how can we take it further for people? You're absolutely right, because ultimately for us as scholars or academics or as government people or, you know, whatever we do as archaeologists, we don't we can't just write for ourselves or for each other. And we we need to share and the public needs to be involved. There have been so many projects I've worked on where we have had folks who have made their own discoveries, be it on a beach or by their or by their diving and, and seeing a shipwreck. But you don't need to explore in that way. Coming to a presentation like that, that at the Balboa is one way to do it. Seeing exhibits as they have out, uh, the National Park Service has out at, uh, at Land's End by the old Cliff House and the Sutro Bathrooms is another. But there's also online. And in this mission that we just did to the Battle of Midway, at NautilusLive.org, Dr. Robert Ballard's uh, not-for-profit who works with Noah and many of us, uh, those dives were live streamed, which meant that for the 46 hours that we were doing these dives around the clock, uh, the public could watch and hear and see everything. The only thing we keep away uh, and off the screens is exactly where things are, particularly for a sensitive site like Midway, uh, where it's the grave of over 3,000 people. But in that, everybody could chime in and participate. And the, the comments coming back online to the crew on board the ship were powerful as people found connections to their own family histories, in some cases finding closure because of family members who were resting there in the darkness 18,000 feet down with those carriers. But also for people who were fascinated and inspired, and some of whom said, hey, did you see that on the screen? 
and participated in the mission and made their own discoveries side by side with us thanks to the magic of telepresence satellites the internet and cables connecting to a robot 18,000 feet down james delgado an absolute pleasure to speak with you on all of this and uh thank you so much for taking the time uh to lend your voice uh to this conversation thank you so much it's been a real pleasure speaking with you Thanks for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Mary Hughes. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.